Here's the first thing to know about Jethro. Jethro is not just a side character in the biblical story. He actually got a whole spinoff religion. Uh, and a lot of us don't know that. But if you've ever heard of this other group in Israel called the Druze, which sometimes people just think I said Jews. No, the Druze. Um, this is a very small sect. It's actually an offshoot of Islam, uh, full of believers in this ancient prophet that they identify as Jethro. Now, they have another name for him, Shuaib, but they identify him with the father-in-law of Moses. And in their little, it's not really a pantheon, but in their collection of prophets, Jethro is the big, the big dog. He's the pinnacle. It's not Moses. It's not Elijah. It's not Jesus. It's not even the prophet Muhammad, though they're an offshoot from Islam. They go back to Jethro for everything. And yet it's, it's almost ironic because Jethro is a convert who opens, um, opens the door for other inter intermediaries to kind of democratize spiritual access uh, among the Israelites. And yet the Druze religion today is almost infamous for doing the exact opposite. The Druze religion today is actually kind of set in a caste, a binary caste system of the priestly class and the non-priestly class. They have some of the most um, tight lids on their religious texts. In fact, until just a few years ago, no one in the world outside of their faith knew what their holy book said. And when that holy book was, was leaked online for the world to read, it was an enormous scandal and downfall in their community. It caused a lot of trouble. The Druze people uh, are all over Syria, Lebanon, Israel, and Palestine. And you can find them, especially in the Galilee, where some people say they even run a mafia of sorts. Um, but I'll let you do your own research on whether or not that's true. They have a great record of serving in the IDF. They actually decided as a rule for their community that all of their young men had to serve, though the Israeli government did not ask them to, uh, because they are a fierce people group. Um, and that ferocity applies to everything, including their religion. The Druze religion, uh, even though we don't know everything there is to know about it, because some of us try to respect their privacy as they, they wish, uh, is one based on reincarnation and the belief that God has created a certain number of souls that he really likes, and they're always going to be around. And once they die, they just go to another Druze body somewhere else in the same community. And everyone else that's not part of that is not necessarily part of God's redemptive plan for the world. So there's a, a, a lot of binaries here, stark contrast between sons of light and darkness and between priests and non-priests. And I remember the first time I ever met someone who was from a Druze community was when I came here in Israel in 2019. And it's... Uh, it's a story that inspires me still today and kind of convicts me still today because I don't remember if I handled our interaction as well as I could have, but I know a seed was planted because um, 
before I came uh, here, getting to know people at Christchurch, studying in Jerusalem, I used to come on these short-term trips with a group that brings Christian college students to Israel. We see a bunch of biblical sites for about a week, and we spend a lot of time talking about the modern geopolitical stuff of this country, its, its challenges and its um, modern marvels. And suffice it to say, even before the war, these trips were never easy to get through. Um, they could be overpowering with religious significance, with quiet moments at the Sea of Galilee, um, on any number of mountaintops, and in any number of valleys. Um, but we also would speak with people who have firsthand accounts of extreme violence, um, who are dealing with, with enormous difficulties here, that your average American Christian, especially your average American college student, just doesn't know about and doesn't know how to handle. And so on these trips, we decided a few years ago that if we're going to bring these college students here for more than a week without a chance to go to church, we need some other outlet for them to, to pray for one another for mutual strengthening. So we created a worship night. Now we actually host several of those at Christchurch. Sometimes they're in other venues around Jerusalem. And in those worship nights, we kind of work through this progression of our songs, opening with with praise that's familiar to just about everyone. They come from all different denominations, by the way. And it moves through, um, eventually we get to a song that walks through the gospel story, like In Christ Alone or Living Hope. Um, you know, those kind of epic songs that are written these days and some of the great hymns of the past um, that take us from, you know, chapter one to, to the end of the Bible. And they always end on the centrality of the figure of Jesus. And then we read in John 17, Jesus's own high priestly prayer for unity among the body of believers. And then we practice that in asking each other to intercede. So we, we read together the liturgy, um, Compline, the nightly prayers. We pray over the trip, over the people we've met, over the people we will meet, and over each other for strength to continue this trip. And uh, then we have a time of intercessory prayer and more singing. Um, I've had it described to me by a lot of people as just like a great moment of, of relief, of recharging, of reflection. Sometimes lives are changed and other times they just get the breath of fresh air they needed all along. But it wasn't until I met a member of the Druze faith that I was told that this seemed to be... Um, a space where we access God. And I feel foolish for saying this, but it's almost such a presupposition in Protestant um, circles that we kind of forget how important that is. Uh, I grew up my whole life being told over and over that one of the benefits of Jesus' sacrifice, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension is that now we have access to the throne of grace, that we can kind of you know, barge into the Holy of Holies and commune with God face to face, not only like Moses, um, but now with faces unveiled. We have this incredible terminology from the New Testament about the freedom to go to God. And honestly, I confess to y'all that it became a presupposition for me, kind of like a boring afterthought of, yeah, that is just part of the deal. But for someone where that's not true, it's earth shattering. So after our this worship night and in 2019, this young man, who was a medic um, on our round, sat me down and said, you know, I, I came to your religious thing last night. I said, wow, really? I mean, you were, 
if that was after hours, you didn't get paid. You know, you could have gone out, hung out, done whatever you wanted. And he said, I wanted to know what, what this Christian thing is all about and why you guys talk the way you do. And if you, if you worship differently from us, I said, well, what, what's the verdict? Are we different? He goes, yeah, I've never seen anything like it in, in my religion. There are priests who pray to God and there are non-priests who can't. I've been told my whole life, it's not for you to pray. You don't get to. We, we pray for you, but you don't get to. There was this glass ceiling imposed on, on this young man that his religion, by definition, refused to let him access his God. He could only do so by an intermediary that wasn't all that interested in his needs. It wasn't priestly in the sense that you want to, to think of inter intermediation. It was more like gatekeeping and bouncers at the door. And so for him to see us singing directly to God, praying directly to God, and then this is the big, the big point, taking turns to pray for each other, willingly offering to intercede for each other. He said, I felt the power of God among you guys last night. Now, I don't know exactly what he meant by that. Through the whole conversation, I never got a, a clear answer because I didn't know enough of his background to say, what is feeling the power of God? So I don't want to overstate what it was or wasn't. What I know is that this guy had seen something he'd never seen before. And in talking with me about it, same here, I encountered something I had never encountered before. Someone whose presupposition was God doesn't want to listen to you. And so what stuck on me now with the Parsha and the Haftarah and the irony of a religion founded on, on the idea of a man like Jethro to say these days, God doesn't want to hear from you. We'll take it from here. You're, you're stopped at the door. That's the opposite of what Jethro teaches Moses. And I know it might sound kind of ironic, but it really is. Because Jethro imposes for Moses a sense of intermediation that welcomes people, that gives them a path to God, not a stopping block away from it. And that's where we find ourselves tonight. Um, I want to see if it's possible to share my screen. Um, I'm not actually sure that it is uh, on this computer I'm working with. Let me pull it up on another screen. Here in chapter 18, I'll read for you snippets. This is chapter 18 of Exodus. Now Jethro, the priest of Midian and father-in-law of Moses, heard of everything God had done for Moses and for his people Israel, and how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Oh, hey, thank you. I had no idea I gave Crystal that power. Thank you, Crystal. After Moses had sent away his wife, Zipporah, his father-in-law, Jethro, received her and her two sons. One son was named Gershom, for Moses said, I become a foreigner in a strange, in a foreign land. And the other was named Eleazar, for he said, my father's God was my helper. He saved me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, together with Moses' sons and wife, came to him in the wilderness, where he was camped near the mountain of God. Jethro sent word to him, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons. 
So Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. They greeted each other and then went to the tent. Moses told his father-in-law about everything the Lord had done to Pharaoh and the Egyptians for Israel's sake, and about all the hardships they had met along the way and how the Lord had saved them. Jethro was delighted to hear about all the good things the Lord had done for Israel in rescuing them from the hand of the Egyptians. He said, Praise be to the Lord who rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians and of Pharaoh and have rescued the people from the hands of all the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all other gods, for he did this to those who treated Israel arrogantly. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and other sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat a meal with Moses' father-in-law in the presence of God. I want to pause there real quick. Can you imagine the enormity of having a meal, not only with you know your father-in-law, but the presence of God? Whatever that felt like at the base of Mount Sinai or um, near the tabernacle must have been um, a terrifying and awe-inspiring. But then the next day, uh, this problem arises. Moses took his seat to serve as judge for the people, and they stood around him from morning till evening. When his father-in-law saw all that Moses was doing for the people, he said, what is this you're doing for the people? Why do you alone sit as judge while all these people stand around you from morning till evening? Moses answered him, well, because the people come to me to seek God's will. Whenever they have a dispute, it's brought to me, and I decide between the parties and inform them of God's decrees and instructions. Moses' father-in-law replied, what you're doing is not good. You and these people who come to you will only wear yourselves out. The work is too heavy for you. You cannot handle it alone. Listen now to me, and I'll give you some advice, and may God be with you. You must be the people's representative before God and bring their disputes to him. Teach them his decrees and instructions and show them the way they're to live and how they're to behave. But select capable men from all the people, men who fear God, trustworthy men who hate dishonest gain, and appoint them as officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. Have them serve as judges for the people at all times, but have them bring every difficult case to you. The simple cases, they can decide themselves. That will make your load lighter because they'll share it with you. If you do this, and God so commands, you will be able to stand the strain and all these people will go home satisfied. Moses listened to his father-in-law and did everything he said. He chose capable men from all Israel and made them leaders of the people, officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. They served as judges for the people at all times. The difficult cases they brought to Moses, but the simple ones they decided themselves. Then Moses sent his father-in-law on his way, and Jethro returned to his own country. I just want to note for us here, Jethro returns to Midian, but he returns to Midian now knowing that the Lord is greater than all other gods. He was pres presumably a priest of other gods in Midian, and now he sees uh, the same truth that Moses was trying to communicate to Pharaoh, that our God is bigger than yours. He's the one who makes the rules. Our God is greater than all other gods, especially those who challenge him. And Jethro gets this message very quickly, but he doesn't just forever stay a member of the people. He goes back to his own people. 
Jethro also gives Moses some very practical business advice. A lot of people look to this as the first idea of decentralization um, and the idea of middle management, which can be done the wrong way. And when you do it the wrong way, you have a bunch of, of walls. You have a bunch of doorposts and glass ceilings that say, nope, not for you. Get out. But the way that Jethro sets this up for Moses was to spare both Moses and the people who came to him. He didn't say it's just to help you and, you know, who cares? He says it's going to wear both of y'all out. But you need to, to, to move some of this tension out across other capable people. And if their dispute is really difficult, they have a path to you. He's not locking Moses away. He's not locking God behind some inaccessible door. He's giving us a proper path to by intermediaries to reach Moses. And through the next two chapters, um, Exodus 19 and 20, which I won't read all of, but we see through the case here, um, we have this exact principle playing out, that Israel being led, the children of Israel being led to Mount Sinai, are given the option of direct access to God, and God speaks personally out of thunder, and the, the earth shakes and there's fire on Mount Sinai. And the children of Israel are terrified and say, all right, no, no more of that. We're opting out. You, you, Moses, you go talk to him for us. And apparently it's not that big of a deal. God seems to work with them. He says, okay, well, <laughs> I came here to speak with everyone, but I'll talk just to Moses too. And so for a second time in this parsha, we have the idea of an intermediary arising deliberately Moses between God and the children of Israel. But it's not because uh, God has no intention of ever being accessed by others. It's to spare them because entering God's presence is a holy endeavor. And God commands the children of Israel to be holy, even the priests, if they don't approach the right way, do so in an unholy way, and they are to be put to death. Even animals that go near the mountain are to be put to death. There is a serious side effect to holiness that makes it dangerous to those who approach it rashly. And so that is what I believe to be the, the kind of through line that's stuck in the minds of the Jewish scholars that chose our Haftarah for tonight. The Haftarah for tonight comes from Isaiah chapter 6. This is Isaiah's vision of the Lord. And he opens with this phrase that no one, myself included, seems to care about. In the year that King Uzziah died. Okay, well, that's helpful for historians um, trying to uh, add a chronology to things. But most of us, you know, by a show of hands, if we're really honest, probably skip over those details. But it's actually a really, really important detail. In the year that King Uzziah died, Uzziah's death in some of the uh, Midrashim, some of the Jewish traditions of interpretation, is not literally his death, but the last significant event to happen before his death, his downfall. And so there, there's a popular Midrash that connects this this story from Isaiah thematically to another famous story of Uzziah. So we're actually, before we go through all of Isaiah 6, we need to back up and make sure we know the story of King Uzziah. 
So that's coming to us from the book of Second Chronicles, chapter 26. This one is worth reading all the way through. We'll just have to go fast. It says, Then all the people of Judah took Uzziah, who was 16 years old, and made him king in place of his father Amaziah. He was the one who rebuilt Elath and restored it to Judah after Amaziah rested with his ancestors. Uzziah was 16 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 52 years. His mother's name was Jecoliah, and she was from Jerusalem. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father Amaziah had done. He sought God during the days of Zechariah, who instructed him in the fear of God. As long as he sought the Lord, God gave him success. He went to war against the Philistines and broke down the walls of Gath, Jabne, and Ashdod. He then rebuilt towns near Ashdod and elsewhere among the Philistines. God helped him against the Philistines and against the Arabs who lived in Gorbal and against the Meunites. The Ammonites brought tribute to Uzziah and his fame spread as far as the border of Egypt because he'd become very powerful. Uzziah built towers in Jerusalem at the corner gate, the valley gate, and the angle of the wall, and he fortified them. He also built towers in the wilderness and dug many cisterns because he had much livestock in the foothills and in the plain. He had people working his fields and vineyards in the hills and in the fertile lands, for he loved the soil. This guy is just like the ideal king, right? He's being painted together as an incredible warrior, as a, um, essentially a farmer who loves the soil, cares for his people, zealous after the righteousness of God. And then through verse 11, he had well-trained army ready to go out by divisions according to their numbers as mustered by Jael, the secretary, and Massey, the officer, under the direction of Hananiah, one of the royal officials. We can actually skip down a little bit. He is succeeding in everything. He's powerful. He's strong. He's kind. He's zealous. And yet, this is verse 16. This is the story. After Uzziah became powerful, his pride led to his downfall. He was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. Azariah the priest with 80 other courageous priests of the Lord followed him in. They confronted King Uzziah and said, It's not right for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord. That is for the priests, the descendants of Aaron, who have been consecrated to burn incense. Leave the sanctuary now. For you have been unfaithful, and you will not be honored by the Lord God. Uzziah, who had a censer in his hand, ready to burn incense, became angry. While he was raging at the priests in their presence before the incense altar in the Lord's temple, and one of the Midrashim says that he attacked a priest with it. While he was raging against them, leprosy broke out on his forehead. When Azariah the chief priest and all the other priests looked at him, they saw that he had leprosy on his forehead, so they hurried him out. And in fact, he himself was eager to leave because the Lord had afflicted him. King Uzziah had leprosy until the day he died. He lived in a separate house, leprous and banned from the temple of the Lord. Jotham, his son, had charge of the palace and governed the people of the land. This is a real tragedy. This is like an ideal hero told to you in just a few paragraphs, a great king, a young king, a powerful king, 
a farmer king, practically a philosopher king for any of you Greek nerds out there. And yet he decides to not just be a king, but a priest, though that's not his role. And he zealously, unabashedly, steps into the temple to do something that had not been asked of him. And he suffers for that. So King Uzziah, in all his greatness, is a little too eager to run to that mountain, proverbially speaking. He's a little too eager to enter holiness without understanding holiness, without trying to properly attain or respect holiness. And that, I believe, is an important backdrop for Isaiah's vision in chapter 6. This is where we find Isaiah 6. In that year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. I'll tell you here, verse 4 is very eerily similar to the description of the mountain being filled with smoke and the earth shaking at the sound of the thunderous voice from heaven when God spoke to the children of Israel. And I do believe this verse 4 is one of the biggest connections between our parasha for the week and our haftarah. But what does Isaiah do, especially now knowing the wisdom from the story of King Uzziah's downfall? He says, woe to me, I cried. I'm ruined, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Isaiah is declaring himself a dead man here. He knows the formula. He's not where he's supposed to be. He somehow ends up a trespasser into holy territory. And that typically should require his life. And yet something completely different happens. One of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. So now, having been purified, having been welcomed into this space by, and I'll just say it's an intermediary, I believe. It's one of the biggest jobs angels have, is being intermediaries between creation and divinity. He's then welcomed into this space of holiness. He's essentially answering a call that is deliberately put out for him to answer. He's tentatively taking steps along the prophetic call, one step at a time. I believe he's doing it well. And so he says, here am I, send me. And then God speaks to him. He says, go and tell this people, be ever hearing but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Another way of putting this in other translations, go on hearing, but don't understand. Keep on seeing if you want, but not perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused. 
make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. This is not good news. And I want us to sit with that for a second. This is not good news. It's despairing news. Some people might think it's sarcastic. In fact, we'll open that later on for discussion. I want to know later on if y'all think that God is is using a bit of, of sass or sarcasm here to communicate the opposite of, I, I want you to understand. I want you to listen. But it really on its face to most readers and hearers just sounds like a bad message. Enough for Isaiah to then ask, well, for how long, Lord? And he answered, until the cities lie ruined without inhabitant, until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken. And though a tenth remains in the land, it again will be laid waste. But as the terebinth and oak leave stumps when they're cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. This is a, a very difficult saying. And I regret to inform you all, this is the end of our Parsha for today. It's a small Parsha. And it does not, there's no like, there's not a very big silver lining here. There's the tiniest bit of like the inkling of a silver lining in the very end of verse 13. Even after the stump has been burned and cut, the holy seed will be that stump in the land. And so if you're anything like me, you find yourself kind of at a dead end thinking, oh, okay, <laughs> so do we just skip to the end? Say we know how it ends so we don't have to, to wallow. Or do we wallow for a second? Isaiah knows he's among people of unclean lips. Isaiah knows that he lives in a time of tragedy, surrounded by people making tragic choices. In the year of the death of a king who had everything going for him, was doing everything right, and then in this tragic arc, fell from grace by not respecting holiness. And it's crazy. There might be another passage of scripture that this reminds y'all of in the New Testament. There's another passage of scripture. I'm not entirely sure if the seed was an intentional connection, but it talks a lot about seeds, a holy seed, really. And this other passage literally quotes from Isaiah 6. And that's taking us to Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4, you get this very famous parable of the four soils. And we're going to go back and read the actual parable um, in a few minutes. But I want us to, to start in verse 10 after the parable has been given. Actually, let's, let's say verse 9. Jesus says, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. I do believe that this, he is very aware of what God was saying in Isaiah chapter 6. And I do believe that he is trying to communicate something about listening and not listening. So when he was alone, the 12, that is the disciples, 
And the others around him asked him about the parables. He told them, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you. But to those on the outside, everything is said in parables, so that they may be ever seeing, but never perceiving, and ever hearing, but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. Other popular translations, because this is a very difficult passage to translate based on two kind of frequent but awkward Greek words, uh, would say, lest they turn and be forgiven. And it it almost, you guys got to forgive me for this. It almost sounds villainous. To those on the outside, everything is in parables. In order that they can keep seeing, but not perceiving and keep hearing, but not understanding. Otherwise they would turn and be forgiven. Add a little mwahaha after that if you want. And it sounds like a villain's speech. I want you to be ignorant. I want you to not get it. And that's hard to understand. That doesn't make very much sense in the context of Jesus' teaching, especially in the Galilee, especially with parables. Because you've probably heard before that a parable, like any other analogy, is ex exceptionally helpful at conveying a highfalutin, you know, spiritual thought using lower level, everyday earthly metaphor. And so you would think that the point of a parable is to be more accessible, more understandable. But that's not what Jesus says here in verse 11. That secret of the kingdom of God, the mystery of the kingdom of God is given to you. But to those on the outside, everything is in parables. And it seems that he's saying, in order that they won't understand, and then he goes on and says, don't you understand this parable? How then would you understand any parable? And then Jesus goes ahead and breaks it down. But I just want to give everyone a moment here to pause and think. Do we know what the parable is talking about without Jesus explaining it to us? How many of us would just automatically assume from verse 1? Uh, sorry, let's, uh, here we go, verse 3. A farmer went out to sow a seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants, so that they did not bear grain. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up, grew, and produced a crop some multiplying 30, some 60, some 100 times. Now, very often when Jesus talks about the kingdom of God, he tells us the kingdom of God is like this. It's like that. Many times when someone challenges Jesus and asks him a question, especially a question about the law, he responds with a parable to help make sense of the principle that he's putting into action. But other times he kind of just seems to go out of left field here. Like when he's talking to Nicodemus, Nicodemus wants to understand more about his ministry. And he says, unless a man is born a second time, he'll never enter the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus is caught up on the literal saying, how does that work? And similarly, we don't know in the context of his teaching, if Jesus sets everyone up to know that the seed is the word of God, that the birds are the enemy taking taking away the good news, that the rocks are 
um, issues in our lives. And the lack of root is a kind of flippant, um, a lack of receiving properly the word of God. Um, we would have to assume that that the sun scorching the plants and the plants withering is somehow related to our inability to tend the the word of God given to us. Or imagine like, what do you think the thorns are? I had to go back and double check. I was wrong. And I've heard this parable dozens, if not hundreds of times, but I was wrong in trying to write out that the thorns relate to worldly cares and treasures. Jesus literally says it's a preoccupation with treasure. The good soil, thank, thankfully, is the good example. It's a little easier to connect. But how many of us really think that your average everyday listener was supposed to make every single one of those connections flawlessly and more easily understand what Jesus says about the Word of God? It actually sounds like he's hiding the information inside of the parable. Now, Matthew notices this problem, and he seems to attack the same thing from a different angle. We're going to look very briefly in Matthew 13. It's the same story, but Matthew tells it a little bit differently. Um, I believe it's also verse 10, very helpful for us. And it rephrases it. The disciples came to him and asked, why do you speak to the people in parables? He replied, because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you but not to them. Whoever has will be given more, and they'll have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. This is why I speak to them in parables. And then Matthew uses a different quote from our Isaiah passage. Though seeing, they don't see. Though hearing, they don't understand. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You'll be ever hearing, but never understanding. You'll be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears and they've closed their eyes. Otherwise, they would see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and I would heal them. Well, blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. For truly, I tell you, many prophets and righteous people think Isaiah and Uzziah. Many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see, but didn't see it and to hear what you hear, but to not hear it. Matthew's version seems to soften it and, and remove some of the doubt that we get from Mark, um, where it doesn't seem like Jesus wants people to not understand him. It almost seems that he's kind of lamenting the fact that people are already hard-hearted. They're already dull-minded. And if they just wouldn't be like that, I would turn and heal them. And so I'm going to pause it to this for discussion in just a minute. For us to talk through, you know, do we think that Matthew is better capturing the ethos of what Jesus really feels here? Or Mark? Or maybe if you think I've set up a false dichotomy, I'd love to hear honestly um, how you think the two work together. But I'm going to posit one theory to end. I said at the beginning that thematically, we're looking at the idea of intermediaries today. Jethro as an intermediary, as a priest of Midian, understands what it means to stand in the gap between people and their gods. Moses understands what it means to stand in the gap between the children of Israel and Pharaoh, and then later the children of Israel and God. He also learns through Jethro what it means to set other people in the gap between himself and the people at large. 
And it's not just to create a VIP section or to create a glass ceiling to rope it off and say, you're not allowed. It's to create a structure for people in Israel to rely on others and not just him. It allows for mutual interdependence, not codependence. I know that's a bad word these days, but interdependence where they can rely on other judges and not just Moses. And they can take their issues to one another for resolution and not just straight to, straight to Moses. I think Jethro knew something about the good an intermediary can play in helping us access what we need and who we need. And I think, if I can posit this as my thesis, I think a parable sometimes does that same thing. It is an intermediary that helps us access the truth if we're seeking it, but also can blind us to it if we're not really seeking that truth. Um, Crystal, you've been really great with the scripture. Thank you. Can you go to, to Mark one more time and we're going to end there? Friends, this is, this is one way to read the passage in Mark. I leave it to y'all um, afterwards. Maybe it's possible to hear what Jesus says here and think, wow, he actually does want us to walk away confused. Not all of us, because clearly people stayed around after he taught and kept asking him more questions. What do you mean? What was this about? And Jesus says, okay, all right, now that we're still here, now that I still got you, I'll tell you what it means. But a bunch of people presumably walked away thinking, you know, this crazy guy is talking about seeds and plants and worms and birds and rocks. And they, in a sense, are rejecting Jesus. They're in, in a one sense, they're rejecting his message. But in another sense, this is a much less harsh rejection than if he comes right out and says, I have the word of God for you to hear. And they say, eh, who cares? In one sense, shrouding the truth in a parable acts as an opportunity to sift out the wheat and the chaff between the people who really want to get it and the people who don't want to get it. And by the mercy of God, the people who walk away early are less guilty than if they had stayed later or if Jesus had come right out and said it from the get-go. Because in that scenario, they'd be rejecting him to his face outright. But as it stands, they walk away with maybe a modicum less of guilt. I don't know exactly how much less, but they walk away objectively less guilty in their, re in their rejection. And Jesus found out early who wants to know God's truth and who doesn't. So maybe a parable is kind of like an intermediary. It both communicates truth to us, but it also is a convenient stopping block for those who really are not honoring the holiness behind it, the holiness of the word of God, the holiness of truth, the holiness of the one giving it, namely Jesus himself. I think through what we've seen tonight, Jethro, Moses, King Uzziah, Isaiah, and Jesus' parables can all show us the power and the risk of an intermediary. And that's where I'd like to end tonight. We'll open uh, now with a question. What do y'all think? Is there another way to read Mark 4 and Matthew 13? Was there something else that stuck out to you?
about parables and what they're doing and what Jesus has to say about those who do not seem to get it? Tell me what you guys think.